Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Last week on Where Blood Runs Cold, Louis Arbogast, wealthy head of the Arbogast family, was murdered in his bed, his head bludgeoned by the butt of an axe, gasoline poured on his sheets, and his bed set on fire. Evidence pointed to either his wife or one of his daughters as the probable murderer. As the Arbogast women freely admitted to police, the doors had been locked when the slaying occurred. When we last left the family, Mrs. Mina Arbogast confessed, under pressure, to detectives that her eldest daughter Louise, whom many believed was mentally ill, killed her father in a moment of insanity. But darker secrets still simmered, unsaid. If what Mrs. Arbogast told police was to be believed, then what would have prompted Louise Arbogast to choose her father to kill, whom everyone said she was very close to, in a terrible moment of temporary derangement. What had happened in the house in the days and hours prior to his slaughter? This is Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold, and welcome to part two of The Silent Sisters and a Sinister Secret, which concludes the strange story of the Arbogast family in 1909 St. Paul. Once readers read about the dramatic conversation between Mrs. Arbogast and her daughter Louise at the hospital, speculation about the murder case began running wild. The St. Paul Dispatch wrote, St. Paul is filled with amateur sleuths and plot builders who have been actively working out their own theories. The Arbogast murder mystery is streetcar talk, tea table gossip, corner conversation, and the subject of midnight dreams. But the very essence of that confrontation was now being questioned. Another version of Mina Arbogast's accusation was already being thrown about, a supposedly more correct translation of the German she had used. One paper theorized that Mrs. Arbogast chose German because her native language would have been more confidential allowing her to say what she needed to without holding back. You say you weren't the cause of this, but I know you were, was the corrected quote. However, days earlier, when she'd confessed to Richard O'Brien, the Ramsey County attorney handling the case, she'd been more muted in her accusations. 
I think it was Louise, she had told him. I don't see how it could have been anyone else. I did not see her do it, she added. But while Mina Arbogast's statements about her daughter's involvement seemed confused, insinuating everything and directly stating nothing, Police Chief John O'Connor was certainly not. No one except Louise could have wielded the axe, he believed. We have conclusive evidence, O'Connor stated. We know she did it, and at the proper time, we can show it. The police were confident enough in their findings that they arrested Louise almost immediately after her encounter with her mother. Dressed in deep black, which was especially striking, reporters noticed, alongside her jet black hair and dark eyes. Louise was escorted by her nurse and by Detectives Sweeney and Daly from her room at the hospital to a Ramsey County courtroom, where she was read her charge of murder before Judge Hugo O. Hampt. My God, she whispered when the clerk described the details of her father's death. Nearly fainting, her nurse caught her and supported her fall. When told by the judge that she wasn't required to offer her plea without an attorney present, she exclaimed, God will be my attorney. I did not harm my father. Truly, I did not harm my father. Oh, help me, please. With a hand stretched dramatically towards the judge, she cried, Good sir, I do not need an attorney. I do not need an attorney, do I? She turned towards Detective Daly. I did nothing. Mr. Daly knows I did nothing. John Borner, assistant county attorney who appeared for the state, tried to speak, but was so overcome with emotion over her desperate state that he couldn't utter a word. You know we all loved one another, she continued. You know I did not kill my father. Oh, God, help me. Judge Hampt decided not to enter a plea until she'd had a chance to confer with an attorney, and Louise was escorted into a carriage outside, where hundreds gathered to catch a glimpse of her, and she was taken to jail to await her fate. As for Louise's representation, a man that would end up being one of the most famous attorneys in Minnesota history was retained on her behalf, William D. Mitchell, who would eventually serve as Attorney General of the United States from 1929 to 1933. Mitchell entered a plea of not guilty for her and waived a preliminary hearing. So the next question would be what strategy the prosecution would use at her trial. Rumors circulated that either the grand jury or the police would soon order an official inquiry into her mental state. Most everyone believed at this point that Louise would had to have been insane to kill her father, so it seemed natural that this would be the next round of investigation. Louise had also become a sympathetic figure, especially when stories of her supposed insanity began circulating. Authorities were most likely relieved that they had what appeared to be a valid reason for not pursuing the death penalty for the young woman. And as the public outcry over the execution of Anne Bolansky had proven 50 years earlier, St. Paul's citizenry did not take kindly to hanging members of the fairer sex, and escorting Louise Arbogast to the scaffold would cause a massive amount of bad press and hostility towards both the police and county attorney's office. A family friend named J.H. Beek summarized things nicely. This case, he said, is one of sympathy and charity, and not of vengeance. 
I don't believe anyone doubts that this girl is insane. And if she is, it will only be necessary to prove that she is. No jury in the country would convict the girl in the condition in which she now is. An official finding of insanity could avoid a trial for prosecutors, and it also would negate the need to pursue any of the other Arbogast sisters as suspects. As for Louise, she seemed to be resigned to take the hit for her family. I did not commit this deed, she said, but I am willing to spend several years in an asylum for the sake of my people. The police soon found themselves, though, in a difficult situation. Despite all of the statements by past doctors about Louise's insanity, she proved to be level-headed, quick-witted, and very normal to both her captors and her visitors. A neighbor of the Arbogasts, named Mary Garvey, confirmed this feeling by some. She had been one of the first to enter the house after the girls began screaming for help from the front steps, and had witnessed Louise, her sisters, and her mother in the aftermath firsthand. I do not know who killed Mr. Arbogast, she said, but I am positive that it wasn't Louise. Louise was the first to tell me that her father had been murdered. Louise, Ida, and her mother were the coolest of the family. As for being insane, Louise was the brightest one of the whole family. During a meeting with County Attorney O'Brien, Louise plainly laid out her view of the situation. They say I did this because I'm insane. I want to tell you that I'm as sane as any person that ever lived. And I tell you honestly and candidly, I did not do it. And I'll tell you more, Mr. O'Brien. My mother had nothing to do with my father's death. O'Brien replied with a question. Now, Louise, taking it for granted that what you say is the truth, whom do you think killed your father? After a pause, Louise gave a strange and cryptic answer. You know, it might sound funny, but Ida and I used to always fight about Dutch collars and who ironed the last shirtwaists. Meanwhile, Mrs. Arbogast was dealing with her own mental and physical strain. Soon after she'd accused her own daughter of murder in front of police, she'd been discharged from the hospital and sent back to her West 7th Street home. Reports began coming in from the home that she was not doing well at all. Dr. Bell Walrath, the family physician, told papers that Mrs. Arbogast was still in bad shape, even after her hospital release. She has not improved since leaving the hospital, the doctor explained, and her condition is extremely critical. She's far from being out of danger and may collapse and even die from the shock of the burns about her body and the nervous strain under which she labors. She was not insane before the murder of her husband, she concluded. William Mantufel, a friend to Louis Arbogast, said nothing of her physical situation but confirmed to reporters her mental instability. Mrs. Arbogast, he told them, was quickly slipping into derangement. Protect me, protect me, she had screamed to him during an encounter at the house on one of his visits. Why, you're all right, he replied. Don't get so excited. No, no, she cried. You must protect me. They are going to hang me. I can hear them building the scaffold now. I don't care what the police say, Mantefel told reporters. The statement of Mrs. Arbogast isn't worth anything. 
when I saw her just after she made it, she was shrieking like a mad woman, and her mind was totally unbalanced. Whatever she said in her terror, no matter what her reason was for saying it, is no good as evidence. Louise is not crazy and never has been. She is not guilty of killing her father. I don't know who killed him, but it wasn't Louise. And it appears as though William Mantufel might have been in a good position to have this conversation, because his closeness to the family was being widely reported by newspapers. One important piece of this puzzle, which papers had been buzzing about since the very beginning, had to do with a trip that was being planned, days before the murder. Louis Arbogast was considering selling his business and heading to the Klondike for a new venture, and he had invited his friend William Mantefeld to go along. Arbogast's family was vehemently opposed to the plan, especially since Louis Arbogast had made it clear that his wife wasn't welcome, and neither were his daughters, except for one, Louise. Louise was definitely his favorite daughter. That was for certain. Her strong head for numbers came in handy for the family business, and she spent every day with him in the butcher shop's office, acting as the cashier. The fact that she was her father's favorite, though, didn't help prosecutors at all in their case against her. Why would she do him in when he gave her everything she wanted? It made no sense on the surface, unless something darker bubbled underneath. The relationship between Louis Arbogast and daughter Louise was one that papers tiptoed around. There were vague intimations about what it entailed exactly. And that was, of course, because no one except Louis and Louise really knew. Louis was dead, Louise wasn't volunteering the details, and period etiquette made certain topics unapproachable, especially for sympathetic prosecutors in the county attorney's office, who already seemed to feel terrible that they would be forced to put Louise through the rigors of a trial. The Pioneer Press wrote that, the authorities have been reluctant to charge the murder against the daughter on account of the manifest friendship that existed between her and her father. She was known as her father's favorite. She was the most intimate with his business affairs. Readers were left to read between the lines on how intimate the relationship really was. Jealousy, most likely then, reared its ugly head within the confines of the Arbogast house based on this special connection between father and eldest daughter. One could easily imagine Mrs. Mina Arbogast in a pent-up rage, watching her husband dote on their daughter. Perhaps in a fit of jealousy, it was suggested, Mina Arbogast might have committed a murder and tried to set her daughter up to take the fall. Emotions must have been running high for Mrs. Arbogast, Managing internally the conflicted feelings within her must have been difficult. Maternal love for her daughter, marital love for her husband, and then the inevitable resentment when they spent more time together than either did with her. There were also more tangible ways that Lewis showed special love for Louise. A family friend explained that Lewis had set aside $2,000 for her to buy her own home once she married, and he hadn't done the same for any of his other daughters, 
which caused a tremendous argument amongst the sisters over their perceived slight. The friend offered his commentary on what was really going on inside the home. The Arbogast family was not so harmonious as many have supposed, he said, and I would not be surprised if the murder was the result of an imaginary wrong felt by someone. Lewis's brother, the day of the murder, had alluded to the disharmony within the house and had refused to comment on any of it. Investigators knew that Louis, Mantefel, and Louise had talked about this trip to the Klondike on the eve of the murder, and the Pioneer Press believed that this might have been the real catalyst of the horror that would soon follow. Louise was a grown woman with a fiancé and could never have been forced to go on the trip. It didn't make sense that a conversation about moving would propel Louise into a bout of insane rage and cause her to kill her father. But the rest of the family was certainly aware of the discussions being had, and the easiest way to put a halt to a trip that they disagreed with might have been to off the man that was responsible for planning it. To humiliate Mrs. Arbogast even further, there were rumors circulating that her husband had kept a strict account of the household budget, and that her requests for housekeeping expenses not only had to pass through him, but through Louise as well, who had the final say. In other words, the St. Paul Dispatch claimed, Louise was his real partner as the head of the house, according to several neighbors and friends, who have known them intimately for years. Family friend William Mantufel offered his own opinion of Louise's relationship with Louise. He loved her more than any man I have ever known loved his daughter, he said. When she went to him to get money, he would always make her take more than she asked. If she thought she could get a dress for $24 or $30, he always gave her $5 or $10 extra. If she asked him for $3 for spending money, he would always make her take a $5 note. He was always trying to do more for her than she asked and she felt the same way toward him. I don't care what evidence the police think they've got, Louise didn't do it. For the rest of May and beginning of June, the grand jury met, conducted hearings, and questioned all of the Arbogast women in an effort to determine whether a murder trial would be recommended. While their deliberations were secret, they determined they had enough evidence to bring two indictments for homicide. One was expected against Louise Arbogast, but the second was more of a surprise. Mrs. Mina Arbogast had also been indicted alongside her daughter. And what was more, she would be tried first. Some guessed that the prosecution hoped that this first trial would lead to more incriminating evidence against Louise. But another possibility was that the county attorney's office was more convinced in Mina's involvement than Louise's and hoped that new evidence or testimony might bring an early release for the daughter. Friends, neighbors, and the sisters themselves, who had only given unauthorized versions at this point, would soon publicly swear on a Bible about what they knew, and investigators hoped that somehow a more concrete theory on what had happened would pull together. But little did they know that testimony in Mina Arbogast's June trial 
would muddy the already tumultuous waters even further. One of the details of Mina Arbogast's account of the murder had especially made police suspicious. She'd said that she'd been in the bathroom for five minutes or so when the murder of her husband had taken place. The problem was the gasoline can and the axe. As neither had been there when she'd gone to the bathroom, the police assumed she was lying when she claimed that Louise, in a five-minute window, had somehow checked the bedroom to verify her absence, gone to fetch an axe from the woodshed, hauled it upstairs, smashed her father's head, then carried the gas can in, poured gasoline all over the bed, struck a match and lit it, and then exited. Then the smoke and fumes would have had to travel down the hallway and into the bathroom and bedrooms to alert the family of the fire. Police believed someone would have needed at least 30 minutes to act alone in committing the murder, based on Mrs. Arbogast's account. And that didn't even remotely match her five-minute absence claim. There was also no explanation by Mrs. Arbogast about how the bloody axe, which she claimed in her confession was laying at Louise's feet when she found her daughter staring into the bedroom, had found its way down to the basement not long after. If there was ever a thought that Mina Arbogast's allegedly delicate physical and mental condition might prevent her from showing up the first day of her trial, it was quashed when she appeared before the judge, quiet, composed, and dressed in the traditional grieving black. All of her daughters sat in seats behind her and would for every moment of the trial. One of the biggest difficulties County Attorney Richard O'Brien found himself almost immediately facing had to do with Flora, Ida, Emma, and Minnie, specifically their confusing and reluctant testimony on the witness stand. It was obvious to many that there was some kind of mutual secret between the sisters, a secret that they were doing everything they could to protect. Whether it was a concerted effort to muddle the case with contradictions or a looser, more vague attempt by each of them, on their own, to protect their mother by making life miserable for the prosecution, is not known. But O'Brien had the unenviable task of maneuvering through their antics to find some semblance of the truth. Ida Arbogast was first to the stand. According to the Pioneer Press, Ida was a fresh-faced and thin young girl who glided to the witness chair without a seeming care in the world. On the night before the murder, she said, she'd gotten home at 9.30 p.m. and found her father, Louise, and William Mantefell chatting in the dining room. Minnie and Flora were already asleep when she went upstairs, and she didn't see her mother at all. At just about 4 a.m., she was awakened by her mother's screams. When she ran into her parents' room, she spotted them both in the burning bed and dragged her mother out. She tried for a moment to pull at her father, but he was unconscious and too heavy for her. After escorting her mother downstairs, she said she ran outside for help, went to Mrs. Garvey's house next door, and stayed there until the police finally arrived. It was a story that hadn't changed much from the ones she'd told detectives initially. 
When O'Brien began to ask her questions, outside of her basic outline of the evening, however, she clammed up and wouldn't talk. O'Brien finally managed to extract an admission from her that once she'd finally come back home from the Garveys, she hadn't gone near her mother. But getting her to say this had been like pulling teeth for the county attorney. Minnie was next and was as evasive as her sister. She told the courts she'd gone to bed early and heard the muffled sounds of Mantufel, her father, and Louise in conversation as she drifted away. Then she'd awakened to screams, ran from the bedroom, and saw Ida and her mother going down the stairs. When she peeked in her parents' room, she saw the burning bed, but not her father. Then she ran out of the house and couldn't remember anything after that until she'd found herself awake on a bed later that day, evidently having fainted or passed out from exhaustion. While Ida and Minnie were problematic for prosecutors, the youngest daughter, Flora, known as Babe, seemed to have the most serious short-term memory issues while on the stand. Whenever O'Brien asked her a question, the wise-looking Flora glanced at her family first before answering. And even then, her answers were mostly a collection of I forgets, especially in regards to the kind of nightgown her mother was wearing and whether she'd heard anyone discussing a trip to the Klondike that night. She did offer the basics of her evening, though, like her sisters had. She'd come home that night and found her mother talking with Louise in an upstairs bedroom. Flora could hear her father and Mantufel talking in the parlor below. At a little after 10 p.m., she said her father came upstairs, checked his watch, and directed them all to bed. She slept in the same room as Louise, and together they went to sleep. No one had argued that night, she recollected and everyone retired to their bedrooms peacefully. When pressed by O'Brien on the specifics of the Yukon trip, she said her father had planned to depart on June 3rd, three weeks after his murder. But Louise wasn't going to go, she told the court. Instead, it was going to be she and her mom that made the trip with her father. Next up were Henry Spangenberg and Isidore Abrahamson who again had been the first on the scene and had put out the fire in the bedroom. They both told their stories, stories which I used to narrate the sequence of events at the beginning of the first episode. Then a nervous-looking Emma Ulmer, the married sister who lived a block away, took questions from the prosecution, but could say little more than, I don't know and I don't remember. Mrs. Mary Garvey was next. She learned of the murder, she said, when Ida came bolting over to their house with the news. Mrs. Garvey rushed to the Arbogast house and found the girls in the upstairs hallway. Louise said to her, Mrs. Garvey, my father is dead. Then she met Mrs. Arbogast, who informed her she'd been badly burned. While talking to her, Mrs. Garvey noticed that the flannel nightgown she was still wearing had been singed by fire and there was a spot of blood near the collar. The women went into the sewing room, and as Mrs. Garvey rubbed lard on her burns, Mrs. Arbogast told her that she'd been in the kitchen when the fire started, making breakfast. When her neighbor pointed out to her that 4 a.m. was unusually early for breakfast, Mrs. Arbogast replied that Lewis was going to the office early that morning. 
throughout all of this, Mrs. Garvey testified that Mrs. Arbogast, who she had never met before that morning, she had only known her daughters, appeared agitated and uncomfortable with her line of questioning. Soon after, Mrs. Garvey watched Louise bring Mrs. Arbogast a new clean nightgown and then roll the old one in a blanket and take it to the bathroom. Next, the Arbogast's family cleaning woman was brought to the stand. She said that she'd been ordered by Mrs. Arbogast to burn some bloody feathers and more of her clothes from the bedroom sometime after the murder. Also of note, she remembered that Mrs. Arbogast, later that morning after the murder had taken place, had laid in her bed for a while, suffering from her burns, before an ambulance finally came for her. All of her daughters, the cleaning woman testified, refused to speak to their mother or respond to her requests for help. The inference, of course, is that they were all very angry at her for something that she'd possibly said, or more ominously, had done. The axe was also taken out and examined by the jury as evidence, much to the shock and dismay of the Arbogast sisters. The sharp edge was clean, and the blunt edge was smeared with clotted blood. Next up was Louis Arbogast's driver, who had chopped wood with the murder weapon the afternoon before. He'd left it at the woodshed, he said, and when he went back a little while later, around 4 p.m., to use it again, the axe was gone. This would have been almost 12 hours before the murder, and evidence of premeditation. While this would have helped Mrs. Arbogast's five minutes in the bathroom story slightly, the time shaved off from having the axe hidden upstairs, as opposed to carried up, would still have not been remotely enough time to pull off the murder in five minutes. It did help the case against Louise, though, who was accused of killing her father in a moment of insanity. Then a parade of police officers testified one at a time about the blood they'd found on the walls, ceiling, and floor. There were bloody footprints that went down the back stairs to the basement. Why the footprints hadn't been measured against the girls' and mothers' foot sizes wasn't mentioned, but one explanation, they might have all been the same approximate size, or maybe the officers hadn't thought to compare them at all. Abrahamson, the newsboy, was called back to the stand, and he recalled seeing the footprints as he dashed down the stairs to put out the second fire. Another officer remembered asking Mrs. Arbogast, how she'd received her burns while wearing a clean white nightgown, but she hadn't answered. When he had pressed her harder about her husband's death, she suddenly started complaining about the pain from her burns, doing her best to change the subject. Louise Arbogast was the last witness to come forward. Unlike her sisters, she refused to answer any questions at all, outside of her name, age, and address. She wasn't legally required to answer these questions either, because she was under indictment herself. Once she stepped down, the prosecution rested their case. The defense asked for a dismissal, which was denied, and then they too rested. As soon as court was adjourned, Louise rushed up to O'Brien. I was willing to tell everything I knew, she cried, but they would not let me. Whether she was referring to her attorneys or her own family members is unclear. Twenty-four hours later, the jury came back with their verdict. Not guilty. Newspapers accused the police of stupidity 
and the public was left with a sour taste in its mouth, especially when O'Brien dismissed the charges against Louise a few months later. The additional evidence they'd hoped to gain in Mrs. Arbogast's trial did not materialize, and no one would ever be tried for the murder of Louis Arbogast again. So the question still remains. Who smashed Arbogast's skull and set him on fire? It was a violent crime, personal and up close, and it seems logical to think it was someone who hated him immensely to dispatch him in such a gruesome way. The most difficult question to prove is motive. It was never established during the trial, and the lack of one was the primary reason Mrs. Arbogast was found not guilty. It's hard to know exactly what this relationship between Louise and her father really entailed. If it was sexual in nature, it was never actually said out loud by anyone during the trial or investigation, which again isn't surprising at all, considering it was 1909. Social mores during the time did not take kindly to public discourse about the private lives of people behind closed bedroom doors. There had been an effort almost immediately after the murder to paint Louise as insane, but in 1909 the study of mental illness was still in its infancy. An alienist, the family doctor, and Mrs. Arbogast herself were the primary vehicles that drove this narrative of Louise as highly unstable. I'm certainly no expert on the subject, but it appears to me that she suffered primarily from bouts of depression and occasional suicidal thoughts, which, while serious in nature, rarely lead to thoughts of murder. People who are deeply depressed think more about taking their own lives than the life of someone else. And what, then, one wonders, was the cause of her depression? Could it have had something to do with this unusual relationship with her father? Could it have been aggravated by verbal abuse by her sisters or mother? Deeply jealous at the favoritism Louis Arbogast showed Louise? Could Louise have had some deep, pent-up resentment towards him, based on some long-term abuse? A trauma that could have caused her to snap and murder him in his bed. Was this trip to the Klondike the final nail for her? The trip certainly seems to have some significant bearing on the story. We can't assume, of course, that Louise had been secretly abused by her father. There is absolutely no evidence to suggest that it was anything like that, because it was never actually admitted by any member of the family. Henry Arbogast, Louis's brother, came closest when he intimated that something dark and foreboding was going on in the Arbogast house. But he was never called as a witness during the trial. For me, I think the most suspicious character in the entire drama is Mrs. Mina Arbogast. We know for a fact that Louise worked every day in close capacity with her father, while Mrs. Arbogast was left at home alone with the staff as the other daughters had their own social commitments much of the time. It's easy to imagine how close the father-daughter bond might develop just based on time together. Lewis worked long hours, managing his very successful business, and any intimacy between he and his wife might have faded over time. So jealousy, either by the mother or by one of the sisters, seems to be a legitimate motive for the murder. And based on their individual actions in the days after, 
It's quite clear to me that Mrs. Mina Arbogast acted more suspiciously than anyone else. There's no question she lied about being in the bathroom for five minutes when the murder happened. It would have been logistically impossible for everything to go down in such a short span of time. And she had told a completely different story to police than she had to her neighbor, Mrs. Garvey. In the second story, she'd been downstairs cooking an early breakfast when she heard Ida scream from above. There was also testimony that none of the girls wanted anything to do with their mother for hours afterwards. One can only imagine the family meeting that had to have been had not long afterwards, where Louise possibly pulled everyone together and reminded them that although they had just lost their father, they had to protect their mother now, despite what she'd just done. And isn't there some age-old police wisdom out there? Always look at the spouse first. There are many ways that Mina Arbogast might have done this, but here is one possibility. Earlier that night, she'd gotten the axe and hidden it in the closet, most likely with the gasoline can. For whatever reason, she'd waited all night, probably wide awake in bed until 4 a.m., maybe finally getting the courage to do what she'd thought about for a while to murder the man who had ignored her and shifted his attention to Louise instead. Maybe Louis's talk of selling the business and leaving her behind was the straw that broke the camel's back. He'd actually picked a date, one of their daughters had admitted on the stand. That previous night might have been the meeting between Louis, Mantefel, and Louise to begin making concrete plans for departure. William Antifell might have cleared this up had he been called as a witness in Mrs. Arbogast's trial, but he hadn't been, possibly because prosecutors were still fishing for proof of Louise's guilt, and Mantefell would have offered the opposite. After all, he'd been adamant to the newspapers that she was completely sane and had nothing to do with her father's murder. So Mina Arbogast, at around 4 a.m., might have gotten up, poured a bit of gasoline on the sheets on his side of the bed as preparation, and then taken the axe and tried her best to smash her husband's head in. Her strength again, according to the coroner, hadn't allowed her to completely kill him. And in her haste to do him in, after a few blows, she might not have noticed her husband still breathing. At this point, she may have taken the axe down to the basement to hide, If he had been groaning or making noise, it's hard to imagine she wouldn't have panicked and just started the fire right away. But she also needed time to conceal the weapon, even in a sloppy manner. And the smoke spreading through the hallway wouldn't have given her that much time to finish this task. So he probably laid in his bed for a few minutes, hopefully unconscious at least. Then she returned from the cellar to the bedroom and struck the match. It may have been at this moment that her nightgown had caught fire. Too much gasoline and the flames had jumped faster than she'd imagined. Perhaps she'd been too close. The nightgown certainly would have been splattered with blood during the attack. Blood had been found on the walls and even on the ceiling. This is probably where her perfect plan failed. She now had a burned and bloody nightgown to deal with and had to change her clothes as smoke started pouring into the hallway. Perhaps she'd even planned to go down to the kitchen and pretend to prepare an early breakfast as an alibi. But when her nightgown had been ruined, she had to change her plans on the fly. So after a new change of clothing, she laid down next to the burning body of her husband, 
just in time for Ida to burst in, scream, and pull her to safety. And chances are good that lying in the burning bed, even for just a few moments, had singed her clean nightgown as well. Hence Mrs. Garvey's testimony that she'd seen a bit of burn and a spot of blood on Mrs. Arbogast when she'd gone to the house later that morning. And again, she'd told the court that Mrs. Arbogast, along with Louise's help, had changed into a third clean nightgown in her presence. It's a scenario that seems as possible as any. There are loose ends that were never tied, however, including that burning bundle of fabric that newsboy Isidore Abrahamson had extinguished out in the back stairs. No effort was ever made to identify its importance to the murder. But whoever the murderer actually was, the horrific crime had ultimately caused no great rift in the family long term. After Lewis's death, the sisters all became partners in the Arbogast butcher shop, and Louise served as the bookkeeper. Later, Louise would marry a man named Asher Webster and move to Rochester, Michigan. But details of her later life are slim. She died in 1930, apparently childless, of apoplexy, which at the time might have meant a few different things, including a heart attack or a stroke. She was only 38 when she herself passed away. Thank you for joining me today for the conclusion of The Silent Sisters and a Sinister Secret. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll meet again soon for another true crime story lost in Minnesota history.